Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Well, did you hear what our friend said? What do you say we prepare him for his burial? How many men you got left? You tongue-tied or don't want to tell me? Forty-eight. Okay. For your own protection, I want to see all of them here next time. Then you'll have the advantage. Go on and round them up. I'll be waiting. I'll round them up. Rest assured. You can clear up the mess now. But don't touch my coffin. Howdy, Jenna. Ciao, Bart. It's cowboy time. That's right, and it's one of my favorite themes. I think it's actually one of your favorite themes, too. It really is. I mean, I don't need to talk about bootleg Bond again and my dislike for that genre, but I've been pushing and pushing and pushing to replace bootleg Bond with spaghetti westerns, and here we are. We're doing it. Right. And this, I mean, you know, you never really had to sell me on spaghetti westerns, so... And I miss bootleg Bond personally, but uh, but yeah, this is a continuation of our now expanded niche genre theme where the last one we did was like several Fu Manchu movies that made me want to die. And then we found a nice happy medium here with uh, Django, the Django series. Westerns, I mean, it doesn't matter how bad a Western is. I can sit back and enjoy it. It's just a genre I love. And Eurospy is not. It's as simple as that. And why can't we just obsess over a genre that we both enjoy? I I mean, I still think there's like a pretty good argument to be made for the importance of Eurospy in this decade that we are covering. But uh, at the same time, I would not say that spaghetti westerns are any less important. But, you know, I mean, like, yeah, like I personally prefer them significantly but I'm not going to give up on bootleg Bond when it's also still fun. It's fun for me. I don't know why. I think it's just probably the fact that I like to torture myself. Uh, well, spaghetti westerns, as many spy movies as Italian cinema made, they made way more of these westerns. In 1968, I believe, half of all the films that Italy produced were westerns. That's how big it was. And it had an impact all over the world. And you can thank a little guy named Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and Franco Nero. Actually, you know what? Realistically, Sergio Leone. <laughs> you could even drag in Ennio Morricone. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he, he definitely he shares the blame. And uh, after Leone's Dollars trilogy, the most important, the most well-known, the most distinguished series of spaghetti westerns is the Django series, which technically there's only one of in the 60s. The first movie, Django, which came out in 1966. 
starring Franco Nero, directed by Sergio Corbucci, is the only real Django movie that was made until the 80s. They finally came out with a sequel in like 87 or something, Corbucci and, and Nero. But in the wake of the success of Django across the world, many dozens I've seen a, a wide range of numbers from like 31 films to close to 100 films that were named so as to fool people into thinking that they were actual sequels to Django or the lead character is named Django or in some way it's trying to capitalize on the fame of, of this first movie, Django, which mainly became such a hit because it's incredibly violent. It has an amazing theme song, though. Yeah. I mean, there's no underestimating the value of these spaghetti Western soundtracks, even when they're not Ennio Morricone. It's iconic music. And uh, the Django theme is, is particularly memorable. And yeah, like A Fistful of Dollars, it's basically Yojimbo. It's another remake of Yojimbo. This one didn't get uh, the director into any legal trouble like it did Sergio Leone. We've got this gunslinger, Django, who uh, wanders into this muddy town, dragging a coffin behind him. He's in this uh, southwestern town that's run by two groups. One is this group of ex-Confederates run by this Colonel Jackson. They are uh, Red Hoods, so sort of the predecessors to the KKK. And they are fighting against the Mexican revolutionaries who also spend time in this town. And these two groups both frequent the same uh, brothel run by Nathaniel, who's uh, sort of the Django's little buddy throughout uh, this movie. You know, after freeing a half-white, half-Mexican prostitute named Maria from being, well, she's about to be killed by the Mexicans for running away from their leader. And then the ex-Confederates, the Red Hoods, killed those Mexicans that are about to kill her and then uh, take it upon themselves to string her up, to tie her to a cross and, and whip her to death. And then Django kills them and uh, frees Maria. And she is instantly in love with this mysterious, violent stranger who's come into town dragging his own coffin. Uh, if, uh, you know, if anybody asks him what's in the coffin, he'll say, me, or it's, it's him in the coffin. You know, so he's, he's the walking dead, and that's sort of a, a running theme. One, one thing that, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, mostly greater degree, these Django movies all sort of identify Django as, as the walking dead, a man who has you know, no reason to live or has almost died and come back from the dead or is actually dead and has come back to life and has descended on this town to get his revenge for some wrongs that have been done him. So as different as these movies are and uh, as inconsistent as they are in, in telling you know, the story of this one character, like clearly the, the Django in every one of these movies is, is a different guy. He just happens to have the same name, but they all sort of have this angel of death, ghost of vengeance sort of thing going on. 
Um, and so, yeah, Django in this in this first movie, he uh, should I go up to as far as what actually is in the coffin because it plays a major role in the uh, in the plot. But it's also a fun reveal when we find out what's actually in. I guess when we talk about some of these other movies, if you I have haven't, to... <laughs> come on. <laughs> I mean, like we we try not to spoil movies when they're rare, but I feel like this is one of those instances where it's like. You should know what happens in Django. Yeah. <laughs> well, Django has, you know, had this history of helping the uh, these Mexican revolutionaries. So one of his first uh, orders of business is to mow down Jackson's men, like his whole army of Red Hoods uh, with with this giant machine gun that he, he's carrying around in his coffin. And uh, once he does that, they, there's a heist Jackson lives and they steal his money, but then Django is, you know, gets into a conflict with the Mexican bandits or revolutionaries because they don't want to give him his share. And then, you know, it's a whole double cross scenario in keeping with the theme of all of these movies. Uh, it's about uh, how greedy people are and how gold will blind them to doing the right thing across the board, no matter what. No, in the in the face of of wealth, nobody's gonna do the right thing or or be loyal to their friends or or not kill and murder anybody that they need to in order to get their hands on this gold. And that's sort of the appeal of spaghetti westerns in general is the lack of morality. Like even the good guys are n- not good guys. Everybody is compromised. It's a world of shit that they live in, and uh, it's a depressing existence to live in these towns where there's no law and order, and everybody's killing each other just for financial gain. And uh, so it's it's how seedy and dirty and gross and immoral all of these movies are that I find so appealing about them. And Django does it really, really well. You know, it's not hard to understand why, after the Leone trilogy, this is the most well-known spaghetti western. It's really stylish, really bloody, uh, as I said. A lot, a lot, a lot of people die, and uh, it's good. You know, you watch this one first before watching the other films that we watch for this episode, and you think, yeah, this is pretty good. But then once you watch the movies that follow this up, you realize just how good Django actually is. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, you know, like Django, Django was never a favorite of mine, especially in comparison to like Sergio Leone, who, you know, we covered in our Clint Eastwood episode, if you guys missed that one, the whole Man With No Name trilogy. But uh, but I'm totally with you. Like, it's just that Django is like, it's really satisfying whenever it gets as bloody as it gets. And it, it gets very bloody, <laughs> which, you know, is like exactly what I wanted to see for, for Django. And I mean, I even appreciate it, even though it was kind of completely eye roll worthy. But I, I appreciated how much this film also undermines that sort of main romance that's us with that barely there woman, uh, Maria, who, you know, he like initially there's this dialogue where she tells him, you make me feel protected and loved. And he says, well, in that case, the illusion should be complete, short, but complete. And then he just like beds her <laughs> and it's so sleazy. And it's also just exactly what you expect from this kind of guy. 
But the one interesting thing about Django is the fact that he's wearing that union uniform and he's like kind of like anti-racist. He aims, aims his guns at the Confederates for multiple reasons, which is it's fun. You know, it's satisfying in a way that like I don't I, I had mixed emotions about the Quentin Tarantino remake, which I thought was, was an interesting idea in, in as far as furthering the whole Civil War theme. But I didn't exactly love the execution. But the original Scratch is a similar sort of itch in, in that like Tarantino way of, of let's go back in history and change the timeline and just do the things that you wish you could have done knowing what you know now, you know, kind of thing. Well, what's so interesting about these left-wing Italian directors, these, uh, you know, probably half, half these directors are members of the Communist Party, and all of these movies have a real left-wing slant, which is interesting because it's considered such a right-wing genre. Like the the American version of westerns is this, you know, it's the American dream. It's the you know the rugged individual, you know, bringing his own law and order to to the frontier. The cowboy is is such a you know I- iconic figure for. U.S. conservatives that to use the same genre in such a left-wing political way, the way that these films do, is fascinating. I do love how godless Django is, <laughs> even in comparison to the Leone films. I mean, there there's like an honor in that, even though there there's a lot of violence too. Django, it's it's really like it's a, it's a free for all for everybody involved, like. There's just no rhyme or reason for most things, and there's certainly no heroism. And our hero gets paid back for all of these like quasi-good or at least better-than-bad deeds by just getting his body utterly destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, you know, really bloody. And this was also a film that, you know, had a hard time with a lot of the Italian censor boards who were, you know, pulling scenes out of it. Yeah, although I think... You know, there, there are tales of Corbucci getting away with a lot of stuff that he probably shouldn't have, you know, kind of tricking the censors. And I think it was in it was in other countries where it really had a, a hard time getting theatrical play because of how violent it was, like the UK and Sweden, I think, and other places. But uh, Corbucci somehow managed to get this through pretty much as bloody as he originally envisioned in Italy and most of Europe. Right, yeah. But it's still, yeah, uh, he did have to go. He did have to jump through hoops to a certain degree just to get this thing released. There's a scene where someone gets his ear cut off and they make him eat it. Yeah. And they didn't like that, you know, like they I think Corbucci said that he forgot to take it out, you know. <laughs> right. But then, you know, of course, it went on to make a gazillion lira at the box office and uh, nobody cared anymore. Yeah. I mean, in 1966, uh, I think it's safe to say this was the most violent movie ever made. And uh, and once it became a huge success, there was no turning back. It was sort of the turning point for for a lot of screen violence, I think. And I just have to point out how delightful it is that one year later, Camelot came out. (laughs) (laughs) And Franco Nero is all like dirty and that like old age makeup. Like like they basically I mean, they tried to make him look like Clint Eastwood around the eyes, which, you know, is a theme 
with all of these Django movies. I mean, every subsequent movie, none of them look anything like Franco Nero. <laughs> they all look like bootleg Clint Eastwood. And yet they're still trying to like glom onto the whole Django. Well, I mean, actually, you know what? To be decided. I'd love to kind of thread that theme through as we go through it, like like which Django is more Nero and which is more Eastwood, but uh, it's, it's just funny. But Franco Nero was, I mean, he was like super young at the time, and he he does look older, and it's it's weird. It's strange. It looks like he's sort of out of time. He was 23 when he made this, and he certainly doesn't look it. I don't know. I think some of these other Django's we, we see, especially uh, Terrence Hill, has that wide Franco Nero face and looks kind of Django-ish, but uh, yeah, we'll I, we'll 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 rate these Django's on a on a scale of uh, Nero to Eastwood. Yeah, we can do as that as we come to the. And the thing about Django too is that it's just it's one of these like er movies that you just you have to see it in order to sort of understand the echoes that it's had throughout cinema. Like I was thinking even even just Django with his striped union pants, I had the realization this time that like, oh, like he's just like Han Solo, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's like, yeah, it isn't, but it probably is. And it's just a a weird little detail where, uh, you know, you start to just pick it up and, and, you know, and and everything you, you just you start to realize like, oh, it's. It's all Django. It's it's always been Django. <laughs> and well, obviously it's the Ur Tarantino movie in a lot of ways. Right, of course. And uh it is fun to see how much of what Tarantino does comes right from this movie. He pretty much had to make a sequel to it. He he rips it off in so many ways in his other movies. I would actually argue that he doesn't do a very good job of turning Jamie Foxx into a, a Django-like figure. Um, but I, maybe that's a discussion for another time. We'll do that on a love-in sometime. We'll watch Django Unchained. Yeah, there's something weird about that movie that just doesn't totally work for me. But I will say, I mean, you know, if you ever want to come on our show, Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, I like I don't resent Tarantino, but at all. But but I do. I get annoyed when people act like he invented this stuff when he's so overtly paying homage to so many different films. And I, I mean, a lot of '60s movies, and he's never hiding that. You know, he's really super straightforward. No, he loves to talk about it. Exactly, yeah. and it's just like the man's great at collaging in that way, and he's always creating something new and interesting through collaging. But I mean, you know, gosh, yeah, like Django, if you haven't seen it and you're a Tarantino fan, what are you even doing with your life? I mean, geez. But uh, have you ever thought deeply about the symbolism at the end of this film? Is there anything more to you here than just godlessness? Like, that's what I always sort of end up on. But admittedly, I haven't thought terribly hard about Django. (laughs) Well, I mean, godlessness is just sort of a, a given with these movies, but how many scenes in so many of these movies take place in graveyards is kind of insane. Like, it's not a Django movie if you don't have a, a showdown in a graveyard. And I think 
death is what hangs over all of these movies more than anything. Like, and I think that's the godlessness, I guess, is part of that. It's like here, you know, we're in a godless universe and what do we have waiting for us? But getting buried six feet under in a, in a box and, a, you know, under a bunch of mud. I love that for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the cynicism of these spaghetti westerns is very appealing to me. Well, the immediate follow-up to Django in uh, name only is A Few Dollars for Django, 1966. Pochi dollari per Django. Directed by uh, Leon Klamowski, who is an Argentinian director that was working in Spain, and uh, Enzo G. Castellari. Uncredited Enzo Castellari, who's probably most famous for directing the original Inglorious Bastards. And you'd think that that would mean something. (laughs) (laughs) But goddamn, was this just a horrible movie? I mean, okay, like on one hand, this is not a Django movie, and this was never, ever meant to be a Django movie. This is just what it is. It's just a basic Western with a cash-in title. It's just low-budget stuff all around, and I'm sure that they went and made it just because Westerns are popular, and then Django got big, and they said, great, let's throw the name Django in the title, and everyone's going to go see it. So um, that's how we end up with this uh, this film. <laughs> Which is about, you know, a bounty hunter named Reagan who is going after some bank robbers and he ends up finding the body of a sheriff. So he takes the guy's badge and he shows up in town and he just like wants to be the sheriff. Like I don't like he just wants to chill and do a good job. Like that's my understanding. <laughs> well, <laughs> but he's he's after he's a he's a bounty killer. So he's and he's after this like one this uh Jim Norton who's uh who has a twin brother living in this town and he wants to prove that it's not actually his twin. It's Jim. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the reason he's there, but he does get caught up in, in all the drama in town and, and being a good sheriff. Yeah. And the town, it, you know, it's embroiled in that feud between farmers and cattlemen. And so, you know, Reagan basically spends all of his time mediating between the two. And, uh, you know, this, this, just <laughs> this was the dregs man this was so hokey and it's clearly shot in like five minutes and the acting is terrible i mean like the dub is terrible though granted with all of these italian movies they're typically you know because because the cast is is largely all speaking different languages entirely when you're watching it you know language wise you're, you're just as good uh, you know, in, in any language that you speak is going to be just as good as a language that it was, you know, shot in. So, like, the Italian dub is going to be about as dubbed as the English dub, so it doesn't matter anyhow. <laughs> Granted, I do always feel that, like, non-American films, especially pre-1990, do a much better job at dubbing films than the American ones do. Like, like English dubs for a lot of these 60 films are, like, god-awful. <laughs> and this one, this one's god-awful. This one's particularly bad, but... 
Well, it's just cheap. I, I think the the dubbing cast is, you know, a bunch of amateurs, and, and that's why, you know, I'm sure the Italian dubbing cast was just as bad, but we, we watched it in English, so I had to suffer through acting that was even more obviously bad to us. I mean, even the crummy voice acting aside, this whole sh- thing just feels like a TV show. It feels like ch- cheap Western TV show. And it's just it's just so blandly shot and the framing is so loose. And there's like a whole thing about the outlaw guys. And he was, a, he was an outlaw. And he never told his daughter. And then she finds out like when shit hits the fan. And I just... I really, I mean, honestly, I just kind of like blacked out by the end of this. <laughs> I, I actually thought that was an interesting idea. And like I was saying, it doesn't matter how bad a Western is. I, I usually find something to enjoy in it. And I thought the whole, is it Jim Norton or is it Trevor Norton? Is it the, is this guy? I mean, it's because our, our sheriff, our, our Django, who's clearly not named Django, but they, they dubbed that name in uh, after the fact. He's on the side of the the farmers uh, against these profit driven you know ranchers who just want the land open so they can graze their cattle and you know are burning down the farmers' houses so they can do that. So he's on the side of this Norton fellow, whether he's uh, helping Jim or Trevor, he doesn't know the good brother or the bad brother. And I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. And you know he's got a daughter and there's a romance there and it's. I mean, it feels very much like a typical American Western. There's very little in this that says spaghetti Western to me. I think the one thing that connects this to other Django movies is that the hero is playing a dead man. The The setup of the movie is, is he takes the identity of this dead sheriff. And so, like every other Django, he's, he is a walking dead man and uh, he's out for blood. And there's nothing special about this movie, but I, I I found it entertaining. Although particularly galling was the final five minutes where it just uh, you know pulled all the extra footage that got cut out of the movie, like all horses running in the field. And, 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 and the song. And the song. <laughs> and oh, just, my God. I loved it. Yeah, it's just a, a little montage of outtakes to uh, take up the last five minutes of the movie because the, the running time was short. That's how you know you're watching a pretty, cheap movie <laughs> it was it was so good uh that was the best part of the whole thing <laughs> anthony stefan is uh is django i didn't actually realize it when i programmed this episode but uh, we do get to see him again later later in the episode as django i was thinking i had six different Django's here i i intentionally went for six different directors but i thought i had six different Django's too but anthony stefan He'll, we'll see him again. And he's definitely more of an Eastwood. Yeah, for sure. Although he's more he's more of a Henry Fonda in this one almost. He's got he's sort of got that that those baby blues that uh, Yeah. You know, he has a lot of eyelashes. Kind, kindly face, but maybe isn't that kind. Definitely very Eastwood in the other movie that he's in. The following year Django Shoots First came out. Django Spara Per Primo. Bolero, dance, oh man, oh man who loves, and man who hates, and man 
directed by Alberto DiMartino, who, a director that we have seen some work from before. He did one of the uh, bootleg Bond, the Lady Chaplin, Agent Double Seven Seven movies. That I'm great film, great yeah. film. <laughs> it was one of the more memorable of the Agent O Seven Seven movies, but uh, he, he certainly didn't distinguish himself as a particularly talented director, and I don't think he demonstrates uh, his ability much better in this one. But it is enjoyable enough. Glenn Saxon plays Glenn Garvin, who uh, there's there's some line of dialogue somewhere in the movie where they say, oh, well, down in Mexico, they call him Django. That's his nickname. So occasionally we'll hear people refer to him as Django in this movie, but uh, otherwise there's very little to connect this movie to to any of the others he's uh except he's a uh a gunman and uh it starts out the movie with him confronting the uh the bounty hunter who killed his father there was a bounty out on glenn's or django's father and uh django tracks him down and uh you know while he's taking the his father's body back to the town to collect the bounty Django kills the the bounty hunter and uh, is gonna bury his father, but says, "You know what? Why waste the money? Why why let that money go uncollected? His father would uh, would be proud of him." So he goes and turns in his father's body at uh, in town and collects the reward. And while he's there, while he's collecting the bounty uh, at the bank, he finds out that oh, his father was actually the co-owner of this bank and half the town with this uh, cluster, Colonel Cluster. Uh, they all seem to be former military guys. Uh, Ken Cluster. Um, and uh, Cluster is very upset to find out that Garvin has a son who can lay claim to half the town that he was hoping to keep all for himself now that, uh, that Garvin was dead. Which is pretty funny, too, because it plays out where you think everyone's horrified because a son is turning in his father's body for cash. But that's not what they're horrified about. <laughs> uh, you know, and it turns out that this cluster was the one who put the bounty on his father's head and he hadn't really done anything wrong and you know, got him arrested and then gave him a way to escape from prison just so he could be murdered with the bounty on his head. And, and so this cluster is a real bad dude. But Glenn is uh, not about to let him get away with not uh, giving him his due and half of everything he owns. So he, he teams up with this uh, Gordon, this uh, I don't even know what Gordon's deal is. He's just Django seems to have some kind of playmate, some kind of buddy in all these movies. And, and this Gordon, played by Fernando Sancho, is uh, you know there to help him out. And there are a couple of ladies in town. Django's more attracted to the wife of Cluster, who is this uh, sort of very fancy pants lady who's who's a bit of a femme fatale. And then there's the, the barmaid who's a, a sweet young thing. And uh, things go somewhat as, uh, as you expect them to go. The real problem with this being a Django movie is that he's such a good-natured guy. This Django is just, you know... <laughs> Fun, smiles a lot, likes to have a good time, goofs around a lot, and he's just not the kind of Django figure that you're you're looking for if you're going into a movie called Django. 
you know, and and the only way that he can sort of uh, lay claim to being the Walking Dead is because uh, you know here he comes, his the heir to his long lost father's fortune. So he's in that sense, he's sort of a dead man reborn, but it's stretching it a little bit. I I, I mean, I thought it was a fun western, fairly well made, uh, some good action scenes, and uh, I thought Glenn Saxon was a pretty likable lead, but. There's nothing too special about it, and it's not particularly Django-ish. Yeah, this is like the charming Django that has like a lot to say even when he's alone. Like he's mm-hmm. just nonstop talking and monologuing, and it's like it's an amusing way. Like I thought he was actually pretty charming, but yeah, it's like a totally different vibe. This is another one where it's like a clear cash in, but like it's a, it's a slightly more on purpose cash in than the previous one. Because for this one, there's actually a line where he says, "Glenn Garvin, I thought your name was Django," and then he's, he's like turns around and he's like, "That's what they called me in Mexico." <laughs> so like, oh gee, at least he really is Django, you know. But yeah, no, I mean, like this one was, it was actually funny, you know, and, and it was a lot sillier and stranger and more charming and a lot less violent. I don't remember. I mean, a lot of people die, but I don't remember any explicit, terrible violence. Do you? Mm, there's some. I mean, he's like every Django. He gets shot and is, uh, you know, has to be nursed back to health. Clusters men shoot him when he's visiting his father's grave and they they wait until nighttime and to try and kill him so they can you know, have him outnumbered and have the advantage and uh this injured Django stalks them through this dark rocky area and it's a little you know a little violent but yeah there's not a whole lot yeah some guy gets like pushed off a cliff right yeah <laughs> This is probably the least violent of all of them. And the best, you know, we've he's he's been shot in the leg and he goes back to the this bar that he owns half of, but it's kind of his hangout place and the uh the dock there, this mysterious guy that we don't know why he's in town, but he's good with a gun. He like he takes a look at his leg and, you know, wipes it with a wet cloth and says, "Oh, it's just a flesh wound. You'll be fine tomorrow." And then, you know, the next day, it's as if he has not <laughs> not been shot at all. Like there's no injury whatsoever, so he's he's definitely he comes out the cleanest of all of the Django's too. And the whole thing with the doctor, like I mean, I mean, like the one thing that was really weird to me about this movie was how it positions Cluster's wife as the like ultimate evil here, just because she's manipulating men into doing her bidding. But it's just, it's ridiculous because who cares? <laughs> like, oh no, she's an opportunist. Like, that's your ultimate evil? <laughs> All these guys are like hardcore corrupt and they're having people murdered or they're like straight up murdering people. And this movie really positions his wife as being the worst of the worst. Like, the whole movie just ends and, and it feels pretty much like this was a movie about how your ex-wife is a bitch. <laughs> it's just, it's like just kind of bizarre. I think it's more about for for a time we wonder if if Django can trust her like he he seeks out he ends up in a bathrobe in her uh, in her room in a lady's bathrobe. Yeah, Django straight up cross dresses in this movie. It's wonderful. And you think, oh, she's she's attracted to him. She's going to help him. Like it, it's. I think that's her point more than being the ultimate evil. It's just like can 
can we trust her? Nope, we sure can't. But there's that Lucy the bar wench who's slapping her. There's like a whole cat fight scene. I don't know. I felt like I felt like they put way too much blame on Cluster's wife. And, and all she's guilty of is whispering into the ears of other men and saying, oh, kill that guy and then we'll take his money. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she keeps her hands clean. Yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> the other thing about this movie was that they kept repeating the theme song over and over and over again. And it got old. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just like a, a six-note theme that it plays over and over. And the, and the first the first 50 times you hear it, it's not bad. Right. <laughs> it also This movie also ends with like an epic punch-out that lasts about like eight hours. <laughs> like I cannot remember how long it was because it was just so boring and so uninteresting and unnecessary. You get a brawl in every one of these movies, but this is the, this is the longest and the most... The one where they draw it out because they think, oh, this is fun. People love seeing people punch other people in the face. And it's just the reminds me of some of the uh, the Italian bootleg bonds. It's just endless barroom brawl for no reason. (laughs) Yeah. But it wasn't bad. It was fine. Yeah. Django shot first. (laughs) Well, the next movie is where it gets good. And I was I was just saying to Bart just just before we recorded this that I'm actually I'm totally ready to rewatch this one because I only realized how amazing it was like halfway through it. <laughs> and that is Django Kill. If you live, shoot. which is if you live shoot and of course he just added Django in front of it (laughs) so this is another one it's a total cash in it's directed by uh, Giulio Questi and it has nothing to do with Django either in fact our main character is called the stranger so that's quite Eastwood oh we you know we didn't rate the last one on our Eastwood scale that guy's more of a Nero yeah he's a blonde a blonde Nero. Yeah, Thomas Millian. Or no, this is Tom. Who's Who played the last one? I don't know. I forget his name. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> <laughs> I think Thomas Millian's Django in this movie. And he's, he's actually kind of like a genuine cross between a Nero and an Eastwood. So the plot of this movie is that it, it starts out with two Native Americans finding a half-dead man in a ditch. And they're nursing him back to health. And we see a flashback that comes to us in this like it, it, total like experimental strobe light style, pretty wacky uh, cutting. And it's basically just the fact that our stranger was was part of a group of bandits that they knocked over this wagon that was transporting gold and then they all turned on each other. So this guy's partner, who's named Oaks, betrays him and he shoots him in this ditch with several other bandits. Well, all the Mexican bandits. Yes, yeah, Oaks is white and then makes off with the gold. So upon hearing this tale, the natives uh, take the leftover gold powder and and they melt it all down and they make bullets for our titular stranger to, to go get revenge. And meanwhile, we see Oaks wind up at a nearby town, which is aptly called the unhappy place. Uh... 
And the townsfolk immediately recognize him from wanted posters. And so they like string up all of his group of bandits that are left and, and leave them to die. And the stranger gets there just in time to shoot Oaks. But the townsfolk are all pissed because <laughs> they wanted to kill him. So they operate on him to save his life. Like they throw him into this saloon and, and put him on a card table and get the town doctor to come and, and do surgery. But once they realize that the bullets that are like, you know, riddled his whole body are made of gold, the townsfolk all go feral and they shove their fingers into his wounds and they like start ripping out all the pieces of gold and just like leaving him to die on the table. It's nasty. You actually see the hands like digging into this guy's body to pull out the bullets. It is so nasty. <laughs> <laughs> And that's just like the first instance of insane violence in this movie. And I, I absolutely do not want to spoil it because the heightening that this film reaches in some places is just so insane. And it comes at you so fast and so like slickly. It's, it's almost it's hard to even react in the moment sometimes. Like some of it's like shown overtly and it's, you know, it's totally nasty. But uh, other things just kind of like float by you and it takes a minute to hit you just how messed up this situation actually is. And the version that we watched was dubbed in English. But whenever it got to the hardcore violence, it switched back to just Italian with no subtitles because a lot of those scenes were just cut for international distribution. And actually, I mean, this one, it had a real hard time with Italian censors. Uh, a lot of those explicit scenes were also they were cut out there, too, because they were just they're insane. <laughs> they're, they're kind of shocking. They don't look so realistic by today's standards, but like, you know, they're, they're really creepy and. It's a really gruesome scalping, too, and I think it switches back to Italian for that spot, too. Oh, yeah. No, it's gruesome, and it's it's a lot. Uh, and and uh, just the, the rest of this movie, there there is um, a, this, like, big-wig bandit who's named Sorrow, and he has this crew of men who are wearing, like, tightly clad Western wear black outfits. His his muchachos, as they call him. Uh, and they look like they're straight up out of, like, a Tom of Finland drawing. <laughs> um, and then there's these other town folk. Who, there's this guy, Alderman, who is a town pastor. And he keeps his wife locked up in his house, like, behind bars in the top floor of his house. Uh, he says she's crazy. And there's this corrupt saloon owner named Templar who works with Alderman, and he is a mistress, and uh, she does his bidding. And, and Templar also has a son named Evan who realizes how corrupt his father is, and he's trying to escape. The only way to describe this movie, and I think if you come in expecting like a straight-up plot the way that the other Django movies are, where it's like Django does this, and then he's trying to go here, you know? This one really plays out more like a, a comic, like a serial comic, where you know that you're following this one guy just through a bunch of like vignettes or like scenarios, and, and it's all just almost like shorter stories that are taking place in this bizarre, almost liminal space where... Apparently, there's people who think this whole movie is taking place in in limbo, like straight up. It could definitely be a death dream. Yeah, and there's plenty of reason to think that, including the fact that our Django is literally shown to have been murdered from the first scene, you know, or at least left for dead. Also, just the way that it plays out is just so dreamy. I will like night nightmarish, but just like dreamy in that it doesn't ever feel like things are actually happening. 
And that's part of what I was saying about like how things are, they're just like super messed up, but they float by you and you just, it doesn't get the same impact that it would in, you know, in most movies. And it, but it feels very on purpose though. I mean, like, this is like definitely like proto acid Western stuff. It's just so strange. Well, I think part of the problem is it's super cheap. You can tell it's the worst looking of all of the films. And it really feels like a lot of the scenes, they didn't shoot all the footage they needed for it to all come together the way it should. And that's part of the, the dream logic of it. It's and, and why it actually took me a while, probably the same reason it took you a while to realize just how intentionally weird this thing is because you're sort of trying to figure out, did, did they mean to do that? Was that jump intentional? Was that, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe that was a, a I don't know. It probably wasn't a, a a latent post-production decision to sort of turn this into a more, you know, crazy dream logic sort of thing. But, uh, you know, it's probably there all along. But the, the budget definitely kept it from seeming like, you know, one unified crazy vision. It's sort of ha- half the weirdness seems kind of accidental. I don't know. I mean, well, I, I totally see what you're talking about, and it's true. I, I mean, I think the editing feels very on purpose. So whether or not they knew what they were sh- shooting when they had it, you know, or like what they needed when they were shooting, when they were by the time they were editing, like they definitely knew what was going on. It's it's like super clear. But I mean, one of the things that is really just so strong about this movie is that as much as it shows you this incredibly explicit violence. The stuff that you don't see is like what makes it even more violent. There's just there's so much that's implied in this movie that's just super horrendous. Like there's that scene with Sorrow's men. And I mean, like as as silly as those homoerotic muchachos are, there's this scene with them and Evan that is just mm. terrible and shocking. And it's because it doesn't show you anything on screen. But there's enough clues and glimpses of where it's headed and but it's all left up to your mind to interpret what's actually going on. And so you can you can watch this scene and you can interpret it anywhere from something that is just an uncomfortable like PG rated situation to like like a full on X rated crime. Like you know what I mean? There there's the the stuff that we do see, like when we do see things on screen, it's so explicitly violent that when you don't see it, it just makes you presume the absolute worst. And it's almost like even worse <laughs> because now it's up to you and it's up to your mind to, to sort of just like piece things together. I mean, there's that one scene where they, they like strap dynamite to a horse with no rider and they send this horse off into this crowd of bandits on horseback. And I mean, you never see the horse dying and it all takes place at night. So it's hard to even see the impact that it's having on these men. But the implication of that is just horrible. I mean, there's no way that the low budget effects could have lived up to what your like mind imagines in that moment. And it just plays out so dreamlike and like strange. I was just I was just super floored by how it managed to shift between basic Western stuff to this more like hyper surrealistic violence. And that vignette style, it definitely adds to the strangeness of it since it just feels unnatural to the whole format of the film (laughs) like it plays out more like an underground comic come to life which was was what really excited me about this because it's it's unafraid to take you to the real depths of depravity 
and its choice to show you like explicit detail is meted out just so randomly, but it never lingers on it long enough to normalize its presence. <laughs> well, you haven't even mentioned the uh, drunken gay orgy with all of, of Sorrow's men, where uh, Evan is so upset by what's uh, what's happened that. Uh... That's the one. That's the scene. Like, you don't know what happens. There's so many. There's just like there's so many ways to interpret that. And the worst version of it is like, I don't even want to say it on the podcast. I mean, it's just disgusting. But, uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's bad when it's considered too graphic for Italy. Like this went out in theaters and got pulled after a week by censors because it was just so intense. Yeah, this was not one of the money making spaghetti westerns by any means but it does have a, a cult reputation and one of the reasons i wanted to do the django movies was just so i could see what this weird spaghetti western i'd heard about was all about i'd actually tried to choose only django movies that had the name django in the original italian title rather than you know being you know thrown on there for the west german release or some other like because all of these Italian movies got released in other countries and with all sorts of different names and uh, you know Italian style. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Django Italian style. But there's um, yeah, so a lot of movies where the Italian producers didn't even intend them to be Django movies or Django ripoff movies in other countries. They they tack Django on there just to to fool people. And uh, this was not. So this is one that did not have Django in the Italian title, but I, I had to include it. It's too, it's got too much of a, of a cult reputation to have not covered in this episode. It's something to see, though. It is. <laughs> that final death was amazing. <laughs> the final death where they're in the house that's burning down. Like, I just, the heightening of everything in this is just so good and just how surreally it all plays out. I mean, there's just something that's so enthralling about this movie to me. Like, I don't know. It was just that everything's so horrendous and horrific. It just, it makes me recoil, but it's just. Oh, are you talking about the, the Goldfinger moment? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> don't spoil it. All right. What about when he's being tortured by poisonous lizards and vampire bats, but they're just iguanas and fruit bats that are so cute. clearly no, nowhere, <laughs> nowhere near him? <laughs> I loved it. It's so surreal. This movie's so bizarre. And it's just, it's, it's, it's everything. It's everything that I want in a cult film, <laughs> like being horrified and intrigued at the same time. It just, it really feels like a comic book come to life in the best possible way, especially that kind of like those pulpy, like 1950s serial style. Tijuana Bibles. Yeah. Like, I mean, not even, I mean, not even as like, underground underground it's like almost just like even those like the two-fisted tails or whatever you know what i mean it's just it, it's just uh it's just wild i just it's just a wild movie man i love it highly recommended and in 1968 we got django prepare a coffin directed by Fernando baldi Each time you dwell in my, so you get lost 
And this is another one with an Italian title that does not contain the word Django. Preparati la barra, prepare the coffin. But this one was actually originally intended to be an actual Django sequel with Franco Nero playing Django again. But he couldn't, he was busy doing something else. So they got in lookalike Terrence Hill to play Django in this. And it's, narratively, it doesn't follow up with the first Django at all, but it's got a similar tone. And there's a coffin, a similar coffin involved. Uh, I won't say any more than that. In this one, Django is a bodyguard for this corrupt politician named David Barry. And uh, he's just sick of how sleazy Barry is and and uh, how he doesn't want to protect this guy who's just uh, exploiting everybody and you know using murder and uh, stagecoach robbery to make himself rich. And so he decides to go off and, and live on a farm with his wife, but uh, on his way to to make this bank delivery, because, you know, he's still got to make a living, uh, his, his stagecoach gets held up and uh, his wife gets murdered and he is thought to be murdered. And it turns out that this politician, David Barry, is behind it. He, he knows where the stagecoach is going to be because Django told him what he was doing, you know, thought he could trust him at least that much. They were, you know, they did used to be friends. And uh, George Eastman plays this stagecoach robber. He's got a gang uh, called the Lucas Gang, and uh, and they do jobs for, for Barry to make him rich. But, uh, you know, somehow Django manages to survive, and so the rest of the movie is him getting his revenge on the Lucas Gang and Barry, who uh, are responsible for his wife's death. The way he goes about getting his revenge is pretty interesting, though, because what he does is he starts a new career as a hangman. So he goes from town to town hanging people who have been convicted of these crimes that they actually did not commit, but uh, Barry is sort of behind getting somebody to you know, accuse them of something and, and have them hung and just so that you know they can take over the property so Django's going around you know hanging these innocent people but really he's got this sort of contraption where they you know they hang there all day long from this kind of leather vest that he's got hooked up to them and then uh, you know when it's dark he frees them and and uh, he has them all sort of camp out together so that at the right time they can come back and, and get their revenge on on their accusers and get their revenge on Barry and so he's got this gang of ghosts basically you know they come in and take their revenge and the people who convicted them are are shocked and they're you can't you're not alive i saw you get hanged and uh so it's you know very much in keeping with the the django theme of this uh revenge by by dead people uh on the on the living on the corrupt living and uh yeah i this this one is not as stylish as the original django but uh it's it's got the most in common with the original one. Although I do have to say that the sort of second half of these movies that we're talking about, Django sort of turns into this. He starts out as this sort of morally questionable gray area good guy who really is you know obsessed with money and you know he he wants the dough. And I think in the first three, it's it's all about getting the money. But in the, the last three, 
he's like money is the ultimate evil. And we constantly see this Django figure refusing, you know, only wanting vengeance, turning down money left and right, not doing anything for the cash and just, you know, just being dead set on revenge. And it's the people who are obsessed with making money who are the ultimate evil. So it sort of becomes these last few are super anti-capitalist movies. And I love them for that reason. I love the final fight jazz music. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, but this one, this one's actually pretty good too. I, I found um, the, the final fight actually takes place in a graveyard, which is really interesting looking. It, it looks very, um, it looks like, you know, the rest of this movie is going for this sort of realism, but this graveyard is totally like a battlefield. Yeah, but it's like it looks art directed. It's just like it's kind of cartoony and comic book like, which is which I found satisfying. There's a great line where the guy, the bad guy comes over to Django and he's like, whose grave are you digging there? And get, and Django's just like yours. And, you know, it's just <laughs> it's just good. It's just like a great stylized looking scene that in some ways is almost weirdly out of context for the rest of the film. But. Then it gets a whole lot of context when <laughs> you you see how one man uh, manages to take out twenty. But um, definitely, I mean, th this movie it shapes up in the end. But I kind of found myself drifting in and out of this one. There's a real lack of character with Django, and I just I just kept wishing that somebody who was a little bit more compelling or interesting was you know leading. I mean, there's okay. There there's like this. Mexican woman who's the wife actually there's this guy Garcia who when we first meet him he's part of Django's gang since Django saves him from hanging and at first you think he's like an innocent family man but then he spends a lot of time like crying about his wife and all of that but um and it, you know and she's also gonna get hanged uh but then he goes insane and <laughs> so the wife ends up working with Django and you know she basically becomes the the only voice of reason in the entire movie though Garcia is interesting because he keeps like stabbing everyone <laughs> around him like even if they don't particularly deserve to be murdered and we end up sort of following his story almost parallel to Django's and he kind of eclipses Django's but it, it's it's also it's just sort of weird I wasn't totally sure what we were meant to be getting out of it other than he just he becomes a sort of godless and moralless agent of chaos I suppose you know the where versus all these like white guys who have more of a a code of honor you know a corrupt code of honor but a, a sort of code of honor I guess um well, I think that's what makes it a twist. I think it, it's sort of a missed opportunity with that character because, in a way, that's the most interesting thing about this movie. Like, the Django has saved all of these guys, these innocent men, like totally good guys who've been convicted for no reason other than Barry wants their land. And, uh, you know, they all, all owe. Django their loyalty because he saved their lives like but watching them sort of get lured in by the money or you know other opportunities and and forgetting about their loyalty to this guy is there's a really interesting movie that unfortunately doesn't is not this movie doesn't go into it nearly as much as it should and the the one guy that they do sort of spend a little more time with this Garcia 
ends up being the worst of all of them, even though it seems like he's a good guy because, you know, we're, we're following his wife too, this Mercedes who's so upset that he's being hung and, and she is actually, you know, she gets convicted and, and, uh, and is to be hung and Django comes and is the one who, you know, saves her from being hung. And, uh, and, you know, there's, there's a really interesting story there. And I think that the fact that they're Mexicans is intentional because the, in all of these movies, the Mexicans are always, you know, if not good guys, they're always portrayed as the exploited ones, the, the you know, people who the white people abuse awfully. And, you know, even in their own land, their own government is, you know, abusing them and you know, in league with, with the Americans, the white people. So the, it's sort of a, a trope that the Mexicans are a little purer than, than the white people, a little little better than them and to have at least Garcia turn the way he does is interesting but it doesn't not enough is made of that in this movie it's sort of me imagining what this movie could have been that uh, that made me like that stuff oh sure I mean there's a really good argument to be made here that this that, that Garcia could have been the star and we could have cut Django completely out of this yeah. whole movie. It honestly would have been a better film, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really come to anything. I, I just feel like the only character that has any sort of personality that really shines through all of this is that one guy that like owns birds. Yeah. <laughs> Who's just like, he's just there, you know, it's like a lark pun intended. Um, but I don't know. I there's this twists and turns. I thought it was fun. Um, it works. It works as a sequel, especially more than the other films that we've watched. Uh, doesn't make sense as a linear sequel. Maybe it's more of a, a prequel. Mm-hmm. But I en- I enjoyed it, especially the ending. I thought the, it was it was pretty fun overall. And yeah, I mean, I thought the bad guys were memorable. George Eastman is whenever he shows up, just he's he's so tall and swarthy looking. He's he's always a memorable villain. Uh, and uh, Horst Frank as the congressman, the, the corrupt congressman is, is pretty, of, of all the villains in, in these movies, he's the one that I want to see come to a bad end the most. And he does. <laughs> of course he does. But just imagine if any of these villains were actually compelling or interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, almost, you know, everything in this movie is almost interesting, but it wasn't bad. It was bad i just i just i just been thinking of what it could have been corbucci i bet would have could have punched this one up a bit oh yeah totally well our last movie is django il bastardo 1969 django the bastard It's directed by Sergio Garone, who I think pretty much did these like kind of video nasty spaghetti Western-esque things. Uh, We are back with Anthony Steffen as Django. Looking way more like Clint Eastwood in this one. Oh, yeah. Big time. Total, (laughs) Total Clint Eastwood. 
He's got the poncho that he pulls aside to yeah. draw his pistol. I mean, everything about him is the man with no name. Oh, yeah. I mean, even down to the fact that it completely reminds me of like a proto High Plains Drifter or even like Pale Rider. It's very, very High Plains Drifter. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's just it's basically just a revenge flick. It 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 has this great opening scene where Django shows up and he like stakes this cross down into the ground, which of course is like a grave marker, and it says "Here lies." Uh, I don't even remember <laughs> some Sam Hawkins. Yes, yes, there you go. Here lies Sam Hawkins, and uh, you know the date of death is today. So then Sam comes out and he's like, what is this meant to mean? And then Django shoots him to death. <laughs> and thus, revenge has been had. Uh, and then from there on, he's just going through town and, and killing people. And I mean, in that sense, it's just it's, there's not much tension throughout because, you know, he's just going to kill everyone. <laughs> like, it's just you don't really care. There's no suspense. But like, finally, they introduce... This character who's like the weird brother and uh, he's the only one who's crazy enough to like try and go toe to toe with this phantom of death. And of course, the crazy brother figures out that Django is just a man because he manages to shoot him in the arm and he sees that, oh, you know, this phantom can bleed. And so once he realizes that. He starts to plot against Django and he sets traps for him and uh, and then it gets more interesting and because Django finally has like an actual rival because otherwise he's just literally floating through town, you know, killing everybody. <laughs> it's like it's like those scenes in every Batman movie where he's just stalking henchmen and picking them off one by one, except it's just like that's the whole film for an hour and a half. It has a good ending. Like I'm not I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It's just that it 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 gets it gets more interesting in the last half hour or so because I think in part for me it's just because it gets kind of sillier. <laughs> like there's a lot it has like it reminds me a little bit more of like James Bond in a way. Actually it has a very James Bond theme song this one, but um but like by the end of it he basically Django's just like dressing in different costumes and killing people like there there's like a great scene where everyone's sitting around the fire and they're talking about we've got to kill that stranger or like we got to get that guy and Django's like just flicks a stick of dynamite into the campfire <laughs> and walks away <laughs> yeah he's been sitting around the fire the whole time listening yeah to i love that stuff it's just it's silly and it's bizarre and I, it's you know it's more interesting to me well it is it's structured like a like a slasher film like it's just you're waiting to see how he's going to accomplish his next kill but of course you're on the slasher side in this case because these people we we eventually find out why these people he's killing have it coming to them and uh once again it's uh people with power killing a bunch of people to get rich basically the way it goes with all these films and this one has sort of a a a backstory set in the in the Civil War. Except this time he's a Confederate soldier, which is weird. That's true, yeah. And he's killing Confederate officers. So I guess that ma that makes up for it a little bit. There's some really bad Southern accents in this that I appreciate. <laughs> um and I would I would call this an eyeliner western because there's a main female character that looks like she just rolled off of like the Rolling Stones tour bus. <laughs> I thought the production values in this one were a bit higher than some of the others, and it was kind of it was pretty stylishly shot, and it di it didn't look as cheap. And I think it might just be because 
the cinematographer knew what he was doing, but it looked, it was a nice looking film, just a little empty, stylish, but empty. But it's also, you know, you're not going into these things for much more than that. So this is a, this is a good, easy watch, fun little horror Western. The best scene is when you think it's like a little old lady in a rocking chair, but it's Django. <laughs> <laughs> I love the the fake Klaus Kinski though, the crazy brother who's all all blonde and has got like sunken eyes, but they did it with makeup so that he would look like Klaus Kinski. Clearly, they couldn't afford the real thing, so they got this this guy to to play the Klaus Kinski role. He doesn't have half the personality of Kinski, but. It's it's always fun to see a fake Klaus Kinski because he's so uh, you know even in in the '60s he's already sort of an iconic madman. I just wish he had like an ounce of Kinski's personality. <laughs> like I really wanted to like this dude. It's just that he's he's everything that I normally really like in cra- as far as crazy brothers go, but. He was just kind of a bore. But I mean, you know, I was, I was glad to see him. <laughs> he definitely brought some color to this movie that uh, desperately needed it, especially, again, as you said, because it's like it's a horror movie, but it, it, it plays like there's just no tension in it for me. Mm-hmm. But it was fun. I liked it. It was still fun. I don't know. I mean, none of them compared to the original Django, unfortunately. But, you know, I, I had a good time with all of them, even that cheap-ass second one that we watched no this was this is absolutely a fun watch i i guess like at the end of the day i mean django just isn't my favorite spaghetti western as far as rewatchability goes not that it's a bad movie in any way shape or form but i just don't really find myself coming back to it the way that all of cinema has like it's intriguing and i like it and i i like things about it uh especially like its visuals you know and in the way that um certain things like the concept uh in general i think is cool uh but i like all of that stuff more than like the actual movie in a way like i just kind of find it slightly underwhelming yeah well it's like top-notch psychotronic it's like total class act b movie like Like we were saying, it's mana for Tarantino. I prefer the, you know, Leone ones that have a bit more substance to them. The style is, you know, in the service of fun stories and fun, memorable, very memorable characters. And uh, and Django is just a violence opera without a whole lot to keep you absorbed. Not a whole lot of meat to hold on to there, but... A lot of the scenes are so memorable, so well done that uh, it's it's easy to see why it's a, a beloved classic for people who like genre movies. There's also just something about Clint Eastwood that is somehow more charismatic than Franco Nero. And I don't know what it is because they say like roughly the same amount of dialogue. <laughs> but Clint Eastwood... There's like there's like more soul to him in some strange way, though. I mean, like I'll I'll repeat my favorite line, which was uh, apparently Sergio Leone said that Clint Eastwood only has two acting styles, hat on and hat off, <laughs> which uh, I think about constantly because it's just it's like absolutely true. But Franco Nero, I don't know. There's, there's something almost too stoic about him. And I don't know if it's just that like Clint Eastwood has those eyes that like 
tell you a bit more about who he is and and or maybe it's just that Nero was so caked in makeup or something but there's just there's just something that doesn't land for me as far as making him as compelling of a mystery as he should be yeah I know exactly what you're saying he's he's a total blank he's a cipher until he starts getting a little obsessive towards the end and going a little gold crazy there's really not much to him like except that he's kind of a smart ass and is not afraid of anybody and will mouth off to the the evil head villain guy without any fear for his safety like that's cool sure but for as little as Clint Eastwood seemingly does in his man with no name roles. You can read a lot on his face and, and he's, yeah, it's for a character, you know, nothing about it's, it's definitely a much more engaging character than Django in any of these films. Yeah. I don't know. It's like maybe Clint Eastwood has more of a, like a palpable anger to him that I feel like Nero's Django doesn't have until that end of the movie where he just starts getting crazed. But he's still fun. I mean, you know, he's still fun. Iconic theme song all around, at least. Yeah, and no no Morricone at all, even though Morricone did, you know, seemingly would work for anybody for, for any price. These were all, I don't think there were any any names here, any composer names in any of these I recognized. And for a bunch of movies that are all just like second rate cash-ins, <laughs> <laughs> including Django, uh, it's pretty darn consistently fun. And that's worth something. And we, we can't say that for all the bootleg bonds. No, we can say the opposite for the bootleg bond. Yeah, I mean... In, goes to show since all of our favorite ones were the ones that were like actively trying to invert bond as opposed to like actual bootleg bonds that are trying to emulate which uh you know we yeah. proved in our, our episode on the british spy movies i mean i love these things i could i can do spaghetti westerns endlessly we can every seven episodes we can keep doing these things i just wonder if we'll continue to have much to say about them the same way i've Felt like we didn't have much to say about the bootleg Bond movies anymore. It's just like, yep, here's here's more of the same, except in, instead of being this, you know, sleazy womanizer, it's some heartless bastard dead set on revenge. And I love talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.